Chapter 33 Wine and Nibbles and the Dawn of a New Era The Jenny Hanover was filled with memories of Anna Fang, the mark of her mouth on a dirty mug, the print of her body on the unmade bunk, a half-read book on the flight deck marked with a ribbon at page 205. In one of the lockers Hester found a chest full of money, not just bronze coins, but silver tails and golden sovereigns, more money than she or Tom had ever seen in their lives. She was rich, she whispered. Tom turned around in the pilot seat and stared at the money. All through their long flight from Shanguo, he had not thought twice about taking the airship. He felt as if they were just borrowing her to finish a job that Miss Fang would have wanted done, now, watching Hester lift the tinkling handfuls of coin, he felt like a thief. Well, said Hester, snapping the treasure chest shut, it's no use to her where she's gone, and no use to us, since I expect we'll soon be joining her there. She glanced up at him. Unless you've changed your mind? He shook his head, although the truth was that the anger he had felt earlier had drained away during his struggles to master the airship and steer it westward through the fickle mountain weather. He was starting to feel afraid, and starting to remember Catherine, and wonder what would become of her when her father was dead. But he still wanted to make Valentine pay for all the misery he had caused. He started scanning the radio frequencies for London's homing beacon, while Hester hunted through the lockers until she found what she needed a heavy black pistol, and a long, thin-bladed knife. For one night only, London's great council chamber has been decked out with lights and banners and turned into a party venue. The heads of the greater and lesser guilds mingle happily among the green leather benches and sit on the speaker's dais, chattering excitedly about the new hunting ground glancing at their watches from time to time as the hour for firing Medusa draws closer. Apprentice engineers tack to and fro among the revellers, handing out experimental snacks prepared by Supervisor Nimmo's department. The snacks are brown and taste rather peculiar, but at least they are cut into perfectly geometrical shapes. Valentine pushes his way through the crowd until he finds Chrome and his aides, a wedge of white rubber surrounded by the tall, black shapes of stalker security guards. He wants to ask the Lord Mayor what became of the agent he sent after Hester Shaw. He wades toward them, elbowing well-upholstered councillors aside and catching quick snatches of their conversation. There's Valentine! Look, back from Shanguo! Blew up the League's whole air fleet, so I heard. What charming snacks! "'Valentine!' cries the Lord Mayor, when the explorer finally reaches him. "'Just the man we've been waiting for.' He sounds almost jolly. Beside him stand the geniuses who have made Medusa work again. Dr. Chandra, Dr. Chubb, and Dr. Wisma Splay, along with Dr. Twix, who simpers and bobs a curtsy, congratulating Valentine on his trip to Shanguo. Behind her, the black-clad guards— stand still as statues, and Valentine nods at them. I see you've been making good use of the old stalker parts I brought you, Chrome. Indeed, agrees the Lord Mayor with a chilly smile. A whole new race of resurrected men. They will be our servants and our soldiers in the new world that we are about to build. Some are in action even as we speak, down at the museum. The museum? Yes. Chrome watches him slyly, gauging his reactions. Some of your historians are traitors, Valentine. Armed traitors. You mean there is fighting, but Kate's there. I must go to her. Impossible! The Lord Mayor snaps, gripping his arm as he turns to leave. Tier two is out of bounds. The museum is surrounded by stalkers and security teams. But don't worry. They have strict instructions not to harm your daughter. She will be brought up to join us as soon as possible. I particularly want her to watch Medusa in action. And I want you here too, Valentine.
Stay. Valentine stares at him, past the frozen faces of the other partygoers, in the sudden silence. Where does your real loyalty lie, I wonder? muses Chrome. With London, or with your daughter? Stay. Stay, as if he's a dog. Valentine's hand curls for a moment on his sword-hilt, but he knows he will not draw it. The truth is that he is afraid, and all his adventures and expeditions have only been attempts to hide himself from this truth. He is a coward. He stretches a smile across his trembling face and bows. Your obedient servant, Lord Mayor. There was a door in the wall near Natural History, a door that Catherine must have passed hundreds of times without even seeing it. Now, as Pomeroy unlocked it and heaved it open, they heard the strange, echoing moan of wind in a long shaft, mingled with the rumble of the city's engines. He handed Bevis the key and a flashlight. Good luck, Mr. Pod. Kate, good luck. From somewhere behind him came a great dull boom that set the glass rattling in the display cases. They're here, said Pomeroy. I'm needed at my post. Come with us, Catherine begged him. You'll be safer on top tier among the crowds. This is my museum, Miss Valentine, he reminded her. And this is where I'll stay. I'd only get in your way up there. She hugged him pressing her face into his robe and savouring its smell of mothballs and pipe tobacco. Your poor museum, Pomeroy shrugged. I don't think the engineers would have let us keep hold of our relics much longer. At least this way we'll go down fighting. And you might win. Oh, yes, the old historian gave a rueful chuckle. We used to thrash them regularly in the inter-guild soccer cup, you know. Of course, they didn't have machine guns and stalkers to help them. He lifted her face and looked into her eyes, very serious. Stop them, Catherine. Stick a spanner in the works. I'll try, she promised. We'll meet again soon, said Pomeroy firmly, hefting his blunderbuss as he turned away. You've got your father's gift, Kate. People follow you. Look at the way you stirred us up. They heard the cannon roar again as he closed the door on them, and then the clatter of small arms, closer now, and tangled with faint screams. There, said Tom. They were flying high through thin drifts of clouds, and he was looking down at London far ahead. There! It was bigger than he remembered, and much uglier. Strange how when he lived there he had believed everything the goggle screens told him about the city's elegant lines, its perfect beauty. Now he saw that it was ugly, no better than any other town, just bigger. A storm front of smoke and belching chimneys, a wave of darkness rolling toward the mountains, with the white villas of high London surfing on its crest, like some delicate ship. It didn't look like home. There, he said again. I see it, said Hester beside him. Something's going on on top tier. It's lit up like a fairground. Tom, that's where Valentine will be. They must be getting ready to use Medusa. Tom nodded, feeling guilty at the mention of Medusa. He knew that if Miss Fang were here, she would be coming up with a plan to stop the ancient weapon, but he did not see what he could do about it. It was too big, too terrible, too hard to think about. Better to concentrate on what mattered to him and Hester, and let the rest of the world look after itself. He's down there, whispered the girl. I can feel him. Tom didn't want to go too close, in case the Lord Mayor had set men to watch the skies, or sent up a screen of spotter ships. He tugged on the controls and felt the big, slow movement as the airship responded. She rose, and London faded to a smudge of speeding light beneath the clouds as he steered her southward and began to circle around. They climbed out of darkness into darkness, 
Bevis Pod's flashlight flittering on stair after identical metal stair. Their big shadows slid up the walls of the shaft. They didn't speak much, but each listened to the other's steady breathing, glad of the company. Catherine kept looking back, expecting to see Dog at her heels. Five hundred steps, whispered Bevis, stopping on a narrow landing and shining his flashlight upward. The stairs spiralled up forever. This must be tier one, halfway. Catherine nodded, too out of breath to speak, too on edge to rest. Above them the Lord Mayor's reception must be in full swing. She climbed on, her knees growing stiff, each intake of breath a cold, hard ache in the back of her throat, the too heavy satchel banging against her hip. Through the windows of the airship, Hester could see the outcountry streaming past, only a hundred or so feet below, scarred with the same ruler-straight trenches that she and Tom had stumbled along on the days after they first met. And there was London, red tail-lights in the darkness, dimming as Tom brought the airship up into the thick poison fog of the city's exhaust. He was good at this, she realized, and thought what a pity it was that his plan was not going to work. The radio crackled into life, London Docks and Harbour Board demanding their identity codes. Tom looked back at her, scared, but she knew how to handle this. She went to the radio and flipped the transmit switch up and down quickly, garbling her message as if the communication system was shot. London Airship GE-47, she said remembering the code name that had come crackling over the inn's loudspeakers in Airhaven all those weeks before. We're taking Shrike back to the Engineerium. The radio said something, but she snapped it off. Black smog pressed against the windows, and water droplets condensed on the glass and went quivering off this way and that, leaving wriggly trails. I'll circle the city for twenty minutes and then come in and pick you up, Tom was saying. That should give you time to find Valentine, and I'll be dead in twenty minutes, Tom, she said. Just get yourself safe away. Forget about me. I'll circle back. I'll be dead. I'll circle back anyway. There's no point, Tom. I'll circle back and pick you up. She looked at him and saw tears shining in his eyes. He was crying. He was crying for her because she was going into danger and he would not see her again. And she thought it was strange that he cared about her that much. And very sweet. She said, Tom, I, I wish... And... Tom, if I... And other little broken bits of sentences that petered out in silence because she didn't even know herself what she was trying to say. Only that she wanted him to know that he was the best thing that had happened to her. A light loomed out of the swirling dark, then another. They were rising past Tier 3 and very close. Tier 2 slid by, with people staring up from an observation deck, and then Circle Park, with lanterns strung between the last remaining trees. Tom fumbled with the controls, and the jenny went powering forward, low over the rooftops of Knightsbridge, and up toward the aft edge of top tier. He glanced quickly at Hester. She wanted to hug him, kiss him, something, but there was no time now, and she just gasped, Tom, don't get yourself killed, slammed the hatch controls to open, and ran to it, and jumped as the airship swung in a shuddery arc over the rim of top tier. She hit the deck plate hard and rolled over and over, the Jenny Hanover was pulling away fast, lit by the sparkling trails of rockets from an air defense battery on the Engineerium. The rockets missed. Darkness swallowed the airship, and she was alone, scrambling into the shadows. A uh, single airship, Lord Mayor? It is a nervous-looking engineer, a shell-like radio clipped to his ear, it has pulled clear, but we believe it may have landed a boarding party. Anti-tractionists on top tier. The Lord Mayor nods, as if this is the sort of little problem that crops up every day. Well, well, 
Dr. Twix, I think this might be a good opportunity to test your new models. Oh, <laughs> goody, trills the woman, dropping a plate of canapes in her excitement. Come along, my chicks. <laughs> Come along. Her stalkers turn with a single movement and form up behind her, striding through thrilled party-goers to the exits. Bring me the boarders alive, Chrome calls after her. It would be a pity if they missed the big event. Chapter 34 Idea for a Fireworks Display Tom wiped out his eyes with the heel of one hand and concentrated on his flying, steering the Jenny away from London and up. He wasn't frightened now. It felt good to be doing something at last, and good to be in charge of this huge, wonderful machine. He turned her eastward, pointing her nose toward the last faint gleam of day on the summit of Zan Shan. He would circle for twenty minutes. It felt as if half that time had passed already, but when he checked the chronometers, he saw that it was less than two minutes since Hester jumped down into London, and a rushing, brilliant thing slammed into the gondola, and the blast plucked him out of his seat. He clung to a stanchion and saw papers and instrument panels and sputtering lengths of cable and the shrine with its photographs and ribbons and Miss Fang's half-read book all rushing out through a jagged hole in the fuselage, tumbling into the sky like ungainly birds. The big windows shattered, and the air turned sharp and shimmery with flying glass. He craned his neck, peering up through the empty windows, trying to see if the envelope was burning. There were no flames, but overhead a great dark shape slid past, moonlight slithering along its armoured envelope, it was the thirteenth-floor elevator, pulling past the jenny and performing a lazy victory roll far over the foothills of Shanguo before it came sweeping back to finish him. Magnus Chrome watches his guests crowd out into the square, gazing up at the glare and flicker of the battle taking place above the clouds. He checks his wristwatch. Dr. Chandra, Dr. Chubb, Dr. Splay, it is time to deploy Medusa. Valentine, come with us. I'm sure you are keen to see what we've made of your machine. Chrome, says the explorer, blocking his path. There is something I must say. The Lord Mayor raises an eyebrow, intrigued. Valentine hesitates. He has been planning this speech all evening knowing that it is what Catherine would want him to say. Now, faced with the Lord Mayor's arctic eyes, he falters, stammering a moment. Is it worth it, Chrome? he says at last. Destroying the shield wall will not destroy the League. There will be other strongholds to defeat, hundreds of fortresses, thousands of lives. Is it really worth so much, your new hunting ground? There is a ripple of amazement among the bystanders. Chrome says calmly, You have left it rather late to have doubts, Valentine. You worry too much. Dr. Twix can build whole armies of stalkers, more than enough to crush any resistance from anti-tractionist savages. He starts to push past, but Valentine is in front of him again. Think, Lord Mayor, how long will a new hunting ground support us? A thousand years? Two thousand? One day there will be no more prey left anywhere, and London will have to stop moving. Perhaps we should accept it. Stop now, before any more innocent people are killed. Take what you have learned from Medusa and use it for peaceful purposes. Chrome smiles. Do you really think I am so short-sighted? he asks. The Guild of Engineers plans further ahead than you suspect. London will never stop moving. Movement is life. When we have devoured the last wandering city and demolished the last static settlement, we will begin digging. We will build great engines powered by the heat of the Earth's core 
and steer our planet from its orbit. We will devour Mars, Venus, and the asteroids. We shall devour the sun itself, and then sail on across the gulf of space. A million years from now, our city will still be traveling, no longer hunting towns to eat, but whole new worlds. Valentine follows him to the door and out across the square towards St. Paul's. Catherine is right, he keeps thinking. He's as mad as a spoon. Why didn't I put a stop to his schemes when I had the chance? Above the clouds, the rockets flare and bang, and the light of an exploding airship washes across the upturned faces of the crowd, who murmur, Ooh! and Hester Shaw crouched at the tear's edge as the resurrected men stalked by, green eyes sweeping the walls and deck plates, steel claws unsheathed and twitching. The cat's creep ended in a small circular chamber with stenciled numbers on the sweaty walls and a single metal door. Bevis slipped the key into the lock and Catherine heard it turn. A crack of light appeared around the door's edge, and she heard voices outside, a long, tremulous, Ooh! We're in an alley off Paternoster Square, Bevis said. I wonder why they sound so excited. Catherine pulled out her watch and held it in the thin sliver of light from the door. Ten to nine, she said. They're waiting for Medusa. He hugged her one last time and whispered quickly, shyly, I love you. Then he pushed her past him through the door and stepped out after her, trying to look like her captor, not her friend, and wondering if any other engineer had ever said what he had just said, or felt the way he felt when he was with Catherine. Tom scrambled through the debris in the listing wreck of the Jenny's gondola. The lights were out, and blood was streaming into his eyes from a cut on his forehead, blinding him. The pain of his broken ribs washed through him in sick, giddy waves, and all he wanted to do was lie down and close his eyes and rest, but he knew he mustn't. He fumbled for the rocket controls, praying to all the gods he had ever heard of that they had not been blown away. And sure enough, at the flick of the right switch, a viewing scope rose out of the main instrument panel, and he wiped his eyes and saw the dim upside-down ghost of the thirteenth-floor elevator framed in the crosshairs, growing bigger every minute. He heaved as hard as he could on the firing controls, and felt the deck shift under him as the rockets went shrieking out of their nests beneath the gondola. Dazzling light blossomed as they hit their target, but when he blinked the bright after-images away and peered out, the black airship was still there and he realized that he had barely dented the great armored envelope, and that he was going to die. But he had bought himself a few more moments at least, for the elevator's starboard rocket projectors were damaged, and she was pulling past him and turning to bring her port array to bear. He tried to calm himself. He tried to think of Catherine, so that the memory of her would be what he took down with him to the sunless country. But it was a long time since he had dreamed of her, and he couldn't really remember what she looked like any more. The only face that he could call to mind was Hester's, and so he thought of her and the things that they had gone through together, and how it had felt to hold her on the shield wall last night, the smell of her hair and the warmth of her stiff, bony body through the ragged coat. And from some corner of his memory came the echo of the League rockets that had battered at the thirteenth-floor elevator as she banked away from Batmunk Gompa, the thick crump of the explosions, and the small, bright, prickling noise of broken glass. Her envelope was armoured, but the windows could be broken. He lurched back to the rocket controls and retargeted them so that the crosshairs on the little screen were centered not on the elevator's looming gas bags, but on her windows. The gauge beside the viewscope told him he had three rockets left, and he fired them all together, the shattered gondola shivering and groaning as they sprang away toward their target. For a fraction of a second, he saw Pusey and Gench on their flight deck, staring at him 
faces wide with silent terror. Then they vanished into brightness as the rockets tore in through their viewing windows and their gondola filled with fire. A geyser of flame went tearing up the companion ladders between the gas bags and blew out the top of the envelope. By the time Tom could see again, the huge wreck was veering away from him, fire in her ruined gondola and the hatches of her hold, fire flapping from her steering vanes, fire unravelling from shattered engine pods, fire lapping inside her envelope until it looked like a vast Chinese lantern tumbling down toward the lights of London. Catherine stepped out of the alley's mouth into a running crowd, people all around her looking up, some still clutching drinks and nibbles, their eyes and mouths wide open. She looked at St. Paul's. The dome had not yet opened, so it couldn't be that they were staring at. And what was this light, this swelling orange glow that outshone the argon lamps and made the shadows dance? At that moment, the blazing wreckage of an airship came barreling out of the sky and crashed against the façade of the Engineerium in a storm of fire and glass and outflung scythes of blackened metal. A whole engine broke free of the wreck and came cartwheeling across the square toward her, red-hot and spraying blazing fuel. Bevis pushed her aside and down. She saw him standing over her, his mouth open, shouting something, and saw a blue eye on the blistered engine cowling as it tore him away. A whirl of limbs, a flap of a torn white coat, his scream lost in the bellow of twisting metal as the wreckage smashed against the top-tier elevator station. A blue eye on the cowling. She knew it should mean something, but she could not think what. She stood up slowly, shaking. There were small fires on the deck all around her, and one great fire in the engineerium that cast Halloween light across the whole tier. She stumbled to where the blazing engine lay, its huge propeller blades jutting out of the deck plate like megaliths. Raising her hand to shield her face against the belching heat, she looked for Bevis. He was lying broken in a steep angle of the debris, twisted in such impossible ways that Catherine knew at once there was no point even calling out his name. The flames were rising, making his coat bubble and drip like melting cheese. Heat pressing against her face, turning her tears to puffs of steam, driving her backward over wreckage and bodies and pieces of bodies. Miss Catherine? A blue eye on the engine cowling. She could still see the outline, the paint peeling under the tongues of the fire. Father's ship. Miss Catherine! She turned and found one of the men from the elevator station standing with her, trying to be kind. He took her by the arm and led her gently away, gesturing toward the main part of the wreck, the scorching firestorm in the engineerium. He wasn't in it, miss. She stared at his smile. She didn't understand. Of course he had been in it. She had seen him there, his dead, gaping face and the flames rising around him, Bevis, whom she had led here, who had loved her. What was there to smile about? But the man kept smiling. He wasn't aboard, miss. Your dad, I mean. I saw him not five minutes ago, going into St. Paul's with the Lord Mayor. She felt the sinister weight of the satchel still hanging from her shoulder and remembered that she had a job to do. Come on, miss, said the man. You've had a nasty shock. Come and have a sit down and a nice cup of tea. No, she said. I have to find my father. She left him there and turned away, stumbling across the square through panicked crowds in smoke-stained robes and party frocks, through the long, shivering bray of sirens to St. Paul's. Hester was darting toward the Guildhall when the explosion lifted her off her feet and flung her out of the shadows and into the harsh spill of light from the blazing engineerium. She rolled over and over on the quaking deck plate, stunned, her pistol skittering away, her veil torn off. There was a moment of silence. Then noises came crowding in, 
screams, sirens. She shuffled through her memories of the moments before the blast, trying to put them in some sort of order. That light above the rooftops, that burning thing sliding down the sky, had been an airship. The Jenny Hanover. Tom, she said, whispering his name to the hot pavement, and felt smaller and more alone than ever before. She pushed herself up on all fours. Nearby, one of the new stalkers had been caught by the blast and cut in half, and its legs were stamping aimlessly about and bumping into things. The shawl that Tom had given her blew past. She caught it, knotted it around her neck, and turned to look for the fallen gun, only to find another squad of stalkers, quite unharmed, closing in upon her from behind. Their claws were fire-coloured slashes in the darkness, and firelight lit their long, dead faces, and she realised, with a hollow stab of disappointment, that this was the end of her. And above the black, silhouetted rooftops of the Guildhall, beyond the smoke and the dancing sparks, the dome of St. Paul's was starting to open. Chapter 35 The Cathedral the Jenny Hanover's shattered gondola moaned like a flute as the west wind blew through it, carrying it swiftly away from London. Tom slumped exhausted at the controls, crumbs of broken glass clinging like grit to his face and hands. He tried to ignore the wild spinning of the pressure gauges as hydrogen leaked from the damaged envelope. He tried not to think about Pusey and Gensch burning inside their burning gondola. But every time he closed his eyes, he saw their screaming faces, as if the black zeros of their open mouths were etched forever onto his eyeballs. When he raised his head, he saw London far to the east. Something was happening to the cathedral, and torrents of pink and green fire were gushing from the engineerium. Slowly, he started to understand what had happened. It was his fault. People must be dead down there, not just Pusey and Gensch, but lots of people. And if he had not shot down the thirteenth-floor elevator, they would still be alive. He wished he had never fired those rockets. It would be better to be dead himself than to sit here watching top-tier burn and know that it was all his fault. Then he thought, Hester! He had promised her he would go back. She would be waiting down there among the fires. He couldn't let her down. He took a deep breath and leaned on the controls. The engines choked back into life. The Jenny Hanover turned sluggishly into the wind and started inching back toward the city. Catherine moved like a sleepwalker through Paternoster Square, drawn toward the transformed cathedral. Around her the fires were spreading, but she barely noticed. Her eyes were fixed on the terrible beauty above her, that white cowl unfolding against the night sky, turning toward the east. She no longer felt afraid. She knew Cleo was watching over her, keeping her safe so that she could atone for the dreadful things father had done. The guards on the cathedral door were too distracted by the fires to pay much attention to a schoolgirl with a satchel. At first they told her to clear off, but when she insisted that her father was inside and flashed a crumpled gold pass at them, they simply shrugged and let her through. She had never been inside St. Paul's before, but she had seen pictures. They hadn't looked anything like this. The pillared aisles and the high vaulted ceilings were still where they had always been, but the Guild of Engineers had sheathed the walls in white metal and hung argon globes in wire cages from the ceilings. Fat electric cables snaked up the nave, feeding power towards something at the heart of the cathedral. Catherine walked slowly forward, keeping to the shadows under the pillars, out of the way of the scores of engineers who were scurrying about, checking power linkages and making notes on clipboards. Ahead of her, the dais under the great dome was filled with strange machinery— a mass of girders and hydraulics supported the weight of the huge cobra hood that towered up into the night, and around its base stood a forest of tall metal coils, all humming and crackling in a slowly rising surge of power. 
Engineers were hurrying between them and going up and down the central tower on metal stairways, and many more were clustered around a nearby console, like priests at the altar of a machine god, talking in hushed, excited voices. Among them she saw the Lord Mayor, and beside him, looking grim, was Father. She froze, safe in the shadows. She could see his face quite clearly. He was watching Chrome and frowning, and she knew he would rather be outside, helping with the rescue work, and only the Lord Mayor's orders kept him here. She forgot for a moment that he was a murderer. She wanted to rush over and hug him. But she was in Cleo's hands now, the agent of history, and she had work to do. She edged closer until she was standing in the shelter of an old font at the bottom of the dais steps. From there she had a good view of what Chrome and the others were doing. Their console was a cat's cradle of wires and flexes and rubberized ducts, and in the middle of it sat a little sphere no bigger than a soccer ball. Catherine could guess what that was. Pandora Shaw had found it in a deep laboratory of lost America and brought it back with her to Oak Island, and Father had stolen it the night he murdered her. The engineers had cleaned and repaired it as best they could, replacing damaged circuits with primitive machines that they had cobbled together from stalkers' brains. Now Dr. Splay sat in front of it, his fingers spidering over an ivory keyboard, typing up green, glowing sequences of numbers on a portable goggle screen. A second screen showed a murky image of the view ahead of London, crosshairs centred on the distant shield wall. The accumulators are charged, somebody said. There, Valentine, said Chrome, resting a bony hand on her father's arm. We are ready to make history. But the fire's Chrome. You can play at fireman later, snapped the Lord Mayor. We must destroy the shield wall now, in case Medusa is damaged by the blaze. Splay's fingers kept clattering on the keyboard, but the other sounds of the cathedral faded away. The engineers were staring in awe at the coil forest, where weird, rippling wraiths of light were forming, drifting upward toward the sky above the open dome with a faint insectile buzz. Catherine began to suspect that they didn't really understand this technology that her father had dug up for them. They were almost as awed by it as she. If she had run forward then, primed her bomb, and flung it at the ancient computer, she might have changed everything. But how could she? Father was standing right beside the thing, and even when she told herself that he was not her father any more and tried to weigh his life against the thousands about to die in Batmungompa, she still could not bring herself to harm him. She had failed. She turned her face to the vaulted roof and asked, What do you want me to do? Why have you brought me here? But Cleo didn't answer. Chrome stepped toward the keyboard. Give Medusa its target coordinates, he ordered. Splay's fingers rattled over the keys, typing in the latitude and longitude of Batmungompa. Target acquired, announced a mechanical voice, booming from fluted speakers above Splay's station. Range 130 miles and closing. Input clearance code Omega. Dr. Chubb produced a sheaf of thick plastic sheets, the laminated fragments of ancient documents. Faint lists of numerals showed through the plastic, like insects trapped in amber, as he flipped through the sheets until he found the one he wanted and held it up for Splay to read. But before Splay could begin typing in the code numbers, there was a confused babble of voices down by the main entrance. Dr. Twix was there, with some of her stalkers close behind her. Hello, everybody, she chirped, hurrying up the aisle and beckoning for her creations to follow. Just look what my clever babies have found for you, Lord Mayor, a real, live anti-tractionist, just as you asked, though I'm afraid she's rather ugly. Input clearance code Omega, repeated Medusa. The mechanical voice had not really changed, but to Catherine it sounded slightly impatient.
Shut up, Twix, barked Magnus Chrome, staring at his instruments. But the others all turned to look as one of the stalkers lurched up onto the dais and dumped its burden at the Lord Mayor's feet. It was Hester Shaw, her hands tied in front of her, helpless and sullen, and still wondering why the stalkers had not killed her straight away. At the sight of her ruined face, the men on the dais froze, as if her gaze had turned them all to stone. Oh, great Cleo! whispered Catherine, seeing for the first time what father's sword had done. And then she looked from Hester's face to his, and what she saw there shocked her even more. The expression had drained from his features, leaving a grey mask, less human and more horrible than the girl's. This was how he must have looked when he killed Pandora Shaw, and turned around to find Hester watching him. She knew what would happen next even before his sword came singing from its sheath. No! she screamed, seeing what he meant to do. But her mouth was dry, her voice a whisper. Suddenly she understood why the goddess had brought her here, and knew what she must do to make amends for father's crime. She dropped the useless satchel and ran up the steps. Hester was stumbling backward, lifting her bound hands to ward off father's blow, and Catherine flung herself between them, so that suddenly it was she who was in his path, and his sword slid easily through her, and she felt the hilt jar hard against her ribs. The engineers gasped. Dr. Twix gave a frightened little squeak. Even Chrome looked alarmed. Input clearance code Omega, snapped Medusa, as if nothing at all had happened. Valentine was saying, no, and shaking his head, as if he couldn't understand how she came to be here with his sword through her. Kate, no, he stepped back, pulling the blade free. Catherine watched it slither out of her. It looked ridiculous, like a practical joke. There was no pain at all. But bright blood was throbbing out of a hole in her tunic and splashing on the floor. She felt giddy. Hester Shaw clutched at her, but Catherine shook her off. Father, don't hurt her, she said, and took two faltering steps forward and fell against Dr. Splay's keyboard. Meaningless green letters spattered the little goggle screen as her head hit the keys, and as Father lifted her and laid her gently down, she heard the voice of Medusa boom, Incorrect code entered. New sequences of numbers spilled across the screens. Something exploded with a sharp crack amongst the looping webs of cable. What's happening? whimpered Dr. Chubb. What's it doing? It has rejected our target coordinates, gasped Dr. Chandra. But the power is still building. Engineers rushed back to their posts, stumbling over Catherine where she lay on the floor her head on father's lap. She ignored them, staring at Hester's face. It was like looking at her own reflection in a shattered mirror, and she smiled, pleased that she had met her half-sister at last, and wondering if they were going to be friends. She started to hiccup, and with each hiccup, blood came up her throat into her mouth. A numb chill was spreading through her body, and she could feel herself beginning to drift away, the sounds of the cathedral growing fainter and fainter. Am I going to die? she thought. I can't. Not yet. I'm not ready. Help me! Valentine bellowed at the engineers, but they were only interested in Medusa. It was the girl who came to his side and lifted Catherine while he ripped a strip from his robe and tried to staunch the bleeding. He looked up into her one grey eye and whispered, Hester, thank you. Hester stared back at him. She had come all this way to kill him, through all these years, and now that he was at her mercy she felt nothing at all. His sword lay on the ground where he had dropped it. No one was watching her. Even with her wrists bound, she could have snatched it up and stuck it through his heart. But it didn't seem to matter now. Dazed, she watched his tears fall plopping into the astounding lake of blood that was spreading out from his daughter's body. 
Confused thoughts chased each other through her head. He loves her. She saved my life. I can't let her die. She reached out and touched him and said, She needs a doctor, Valentine. He looked at the engineers, clustering around their machine in a frantic scrum. There would be no help from them. Outside the cathedral doors, curtains of golden fire swung across Paternoster Square. He looked up and saw something red catch the firelight beyond the high windows of the starboard transept. It's a Jenny Hanover, shouted Hester, scrambling to her feet. Oh, it's Tom, and there's a medical bay aboard. But she knew the Jenny couldn't land amid the flames of top tier. Valentine, can we get onto the roof somehow? Valentine picked up his sword and cut the cords on her wrists. Then, flinging it aside, he lifted Catherine and started to carry her between the spitting coils to where the metal stairways zigzagged up into the dome. Stalkers reached out for Hester as she scurried after him, but Valentine ordered them back. To a startled beefeater, he shouted, Captain, that airship is not to be fired upon. Magnus Crone came running to clutch at his sleeve. The machine has gone mad, he wailed. Quirk alone knows what commands your daughter fed it. We can't fire it and we can't stop the energy build-up. Do something, Valentine. You discovered the damned thing. Make it stop. Valentine shoved him aside and started up the steps, through the rising veils of light, the crackling static, through air that smelled like burning tin. I only wanted to help London. The old man sobbed. I only wanted to make London strong. Chapter 36 The Shadow of Bones Hester took the lead, climbing up through the open top of the dome into smoky firelight and the shadow of the great weapon. Off to her right, the charred skeleton of the thirteenth-floor elevator lay draped over the ruins of the Engineerium like a derelict roller coaster. The fire had spread to the Guild Hall, and the planning department and the Hall of Records were blazing, hurling out firefly swarms of sparks and millions of pink and white official forms. St. Paul's was an island in a sea of fire, with a Jenny Hanover swinging above it like a low-budget moon, scorched and listing, veering drunkenly in the updrafts from the burning buildings. She climbed higher, out onto the cobra hood of Medusa. Valentine came after her. She could hear him whispering to Catherine, his eyes fixed on the struggling airship. What idiot is flying that thing? he shouted, working his way across the cowl to join her. It's Tom! Hester called back, and stood up, waving both arms and shouting, Tom! Tom! It was the shawl that Tom saw first, the one he had bought for her in Peripatetiapolis. Knotted around her neck now, streaming on the wind, it made a sudden flash of red, and he saw it from the corner of his eye, and looked down and saw her there, waving. Then a black wing of smoke came down over her, and he wondered if he had only imagined that tiny figure inching out onto the cobra's hood, because it seemed impossible that anyone could survive in this huge fire that he had caused. He made the Jenny Hanover swoop closer, the smoke lifted, and there she was, flapping her arms, with her long black coat and her long-legged stride and her ugly, wonderful face. Catherine opened her eyes. The cold inside her was growing, spreading from the place where the sword had gone in. She was still hiccuping, and she thought how stupid it would be to die with hiccups, how undignified. She wished Dog was with her. Tom! Tom! somebody kept shouting. She turned her head and saw an airship coming down out of the smoke, closer and closer, until the side of the gondola scraped against Medusa's cowl, and she felt the downdraft from its battered engine pods. Father was carrying her toward it, and she could see Tom peering out at her through the broken windscreen. Tom, who had been there when it all began, whom she had thought was dead. But here he was, alive, looking shocked and soot-stained, with a V-shaped wound on his forehead, like the mark of some unknown guild. 
The gondola was much bigger inside than she expected. In fact, it was a lot like Cleo House. And Dog and Bevis were both waiting for her there. And her hiccups had stopped. And her wound wasn't as bad as everyone had thought. It was just a scratch. Sunlight streamed in through the windows as Tom flew them all up and up into a sky of the most perfect crystal blue, and she relaxed gratefully into her father's arms. Hester reached the airship first, hauling herself aboard through its shattered flank, but when she looked back, holding out her hand to Valentine, she saw that he had fallen to his knees, and realized Catherine was dead. She stayed there, still with her hand outstretched, not quite knowing why. There was an electric shimmer in the air above the white metal hood. She shouted, Valentine, be quick! He lifted his eyes from his daughter's face, just long enough to say, Hester, Tom, fly, save yourselves! Behind her, Tom was cupping his hands to his ears and shouting, What did he say? Is that Catherine? What's happened? Just go! she yelled, and, clambering past him, started switching all the engines that still worked to full power. When she looked down again, Valentine was dwindling away below, a dark shape cradled in his arms, a pale hand trailing. She felt like Catherine's ghost rising into the sky. There was a terrible pain inside her, and her breath came in sobs, and something wet and hot was spilling down her cheek. She wondered if she could have been wounded without noticing it, but when she put her hands to her face, her fingers came away wet, and she understood that she was crying, crying for her mum and dad, and Shrike, and Catherine, and even for Valentine, as the crackling light around the cathedral grew brighter, and Tom steered the Jenny Hanover away into the dark. Down in the gut... London's enormous motors suddenly cut out, without warning, and all at once, doused by the strange radiations that were starting to sleet through the city's fabric. For the first time since it crossed the land bridge, the great traction city started to slow. In a hastily barricaded gallery in the London Museum, Chudley Pomeroy peered cautiously over the replica of the Blue Whale, and saw that the squads of stalkers advancing on his last redoubt had all stopped in their tracks, pale clouds of sparks coiling around their metal skulls like barbed wire. Great quirk, he said, turning to his surviving handful of historians. We've won! Valentine watches the red airship fly away, lit by the flames of top tier, and by the spitting forks of light that are beginning to flare around St. Paul's. He can hear hopeless firebells jangling somewhere below, and the panic-stricken shouts of fleeing engineers. A halo of St. Elmo's fire flares around Catherine's face, and her hair sparks and cracks as he strokes it. He gently moves a stray strand that has blown into her mouth, and holds her close, and waits. And the stormlight breaks over them, and they are a knot of fire, a rush of blazing gas, and gone, the shadows of their bones scattering into the brilliant sky. Chapter 37 The Bird Roads London wore a wreath of lightning. It was as if the ray that should have reached out across a hundred miles to sear the stones of Batmungompa had tangled around the upper tiers instead, sending cataracts of molten metal splashing down the city's flanks. Explosions surged through the gut, heaving vast fragments of wreckage end over end into the sky like dead leaves in a gale. A few airships rose with them, seeking to escape, but their envelopes ignited, and they shriveled and fell, small bright flakes of fire amid the greater burning. Only the Jenny Hanover survived, riding on the fringes of the storm, spinning and pitching as the shock waves battered her, streamers of rainbow light spilling from her rigging and rotor blades. Her engines had all failed together in that first great pulse of energy, 
and nothing that Tom knew how to do would make them start again. He slumped down in what was left of the pilot's seat, weeping, watching helplessly as the night wind carried him farther and farther from his dying city. It's my fault, was all he could think to say. It's all my fault. Hester was watching too, staring back at the place where St. Paul's had been, as if she could still see the after-images of Catherine and her father lost in the brightness there. Oh, Tom, no, she said. It was an accident. Something went wrong with their machine. It was Valentine's fault and Chrome's. It was the engineer's fault for getting the thing to work and my mum's fault for digging it up in the first place. It was the ancient's fault for inventing it. It was Pusey's and Gensch's fault for trying to kill you and Catherine's for saving my life. She sat down beside him, wanting to comfort him but afraid to touch him, while her reflections sneered at her from fractured dials and blades of window glass, more monstrous than ever in the fluttering glare of Medusa. Then she thought, Silly, he came back, didn't he? He came back for you. Trembling, she put her arms around him and pulled him close, nuzzling the top of his head, shyly kissing away the blood from the fresh wound between his eyebrows, hugging him tight until the dying weapon had spent itself and the first grey daylight crept across the plain. It's all right, Tom, she kept telling him. It's all right. London was far away, motionless under banners of smoke. Tom found Miss Fang's old field glasses and focused them on the city. Someone must have survived, he said, hoping that saying it would make it true. I bet Mr. Pomeroy and Clytie Potts are down there, organising rescue parties and handing out cups of tea. But through the smoke, the steam, the pall of hanging ash, he could see nothing. 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 And although he swung the binoculars to and fro, growing increasingly desperate, all they showed him were the bony shapes of blackened girders and the scorched earth littered with torn-off wheels and blazing lakes of fuel and broken tracks lying tangled on themselves like the cast-off skins of enormous snakes. Tom? Hester had been trying the controls, and had found to her surprise that the rudder levers still worked. The Jenny Hanover responded to her touch, turning this way and that on the wind. She said gently, Tom, we could try and reach Batmont Gomper. We'll be welcome there. They'll probably think you're a hero. But Tom shook his head. Behind his eyes the thirteenth-floor elevator was still spiralling toward top tier, and Pusey and Gensch were riding their black, silent screams into the fire. He didn't know what he was, but he knew he was no hero. All right, said Hester, understanding. It took time to get over things sometimes, she knew that. She would be patient with him. She said, We'll head for the Black Island. We can repair the Jenny at the air caravanserai. And then we'll take the bird roads and go somewhere far away, the Hundred Islands, or the Tannhäuser Mountains, or the Southern Ice Waste. I don't mind where, as long as I can come too. She knelt beside him, resting her arms on his knees, and her head on her arms. And Tom found that he was smiling in spite of himself at her crooked smile. You aren't a hero, and I'm not beautiful, and we probably won't live happily ever after, she said. But we're alive, and together, and we're going to be all right. This is Barnaby Edwards. We hope that you have enjoyed this production of Mortal Engines, Book One, by Philip Reeve. This audiobook was produced by Dion Audio and directed by Amy Matheson. Executive producer, Paul R. Gagney. Print edition published by Scholastic Inc. by arrangement with Scholastic Children's Books, an imprint of Scholastic Limited, London. Text copyright 2001 by Philip Reeve. Production copyright 2017 by Scholastic Inc. 
all rights reserved. Look for other exciting titles in the Mortal Engines and Fever Crumb series by Philip Reeve from Scholastic Audio.